0: You're listening to the Elmira Radio Hour, a podcast that opens the door to culture and news you definitely missed this week. We're We're your your hosts, Nina Bhattacharya and Sheila Lal. This week, we're giving each other virtual high fives, talking about voting, chatting about film. Actually, we chat a lot about film and much, much more. Let's get to it.
1: longa vacha, piche piche anda meri jale piche piche anda meri jale venai gire vale avec dai mera longa vacha, mera longa vacca mera longa vacha, mera longa vacha. mera longa vacca
0: So word on the street is, Sheila, that you uh, got some film award.
2: Yeah. So when I did my Fulbright, I co-wrote and pre-produced a short film with a good friend of mine who is now one of Colombo's preeminent directors. Uh, it's called Elephant, and he submitted it to a couple of film festivals, one of them being this massive Asian film competition. And it got in, and it got a silver placement, which is really cool. Sweet. Yeah.
0: What, what is Elephant about?
2: So Elephant is a short fictional film that delves into the Columbo 7 elite Um, And so historically in Sri Lankan cinema, the idea of city and wealth has been framed as kind of vice and sin and just something no one should aspire to. But we decided that we wanted to focus specifically on the old wealth and like the nouveau riche communities in Colombo as kind of a, a pushback on that it's an anthropological look at family and looking at how family is decided and how stigma can perpetuate that idea, too. So I don't want to give so, a lot away, but it's, yeah. yeah. So what does what did the process look like? Yeah, so it actually started when my friend Rehan, who directed it, was over at my apartment. And I was like, hey, we should write a film together. And he looks at me and goes, yeah, we absolutely should. And his father is a fiction writer. And so Mm -hmm. he had this story just uh, sitting on a back shelf and we pulled it out and retooled it into a script, but also went through like, I think 16 or 17 iterations. So we would get together and like flesh out the characters. And then from there, get into nuance about how we wanted these characters to interact with each other and pulling from the different experiences we had had in Sri Lanka. Our film experiences are like in my case, South Asian, Mm -hmm. some uh, Brazilian cinema, for him, like, Europeans and American cinema, to get a good, cohesive idea of what it should look like and what these characters, like, what nuance they can bring to the screen. So, like, when we did the pre-production, it was actually pretty incredible that my research from the first half of my Fulbright played a massive role in the casting for uh, for the film. So that was just, like, a really phenomenal experience to be on the other side, or, like, on the production
0: side of making a film. I mean the most important question though is do you have an IMDb? Page? I do. I actually do. <laughs> Wait, didn't your mom tell you yes. this? Like you didn't actually know on your own but your mother told you yes. that you have one? Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Way to go.
2: Yeah, so it's like a big deal, especially because I mean, as you know, within Fulbright, there's this weird imposter syndrome that just permeates like, am I should I even have this? Oh, totally. Like, am I worthwhile of the grant? Am I doing enough to make it seem like it's still justifiable? And Mm -hmm. the fact that like three years later, the work I did is still being impactful, or it's impacting somebody means Mm -hmm. a lot and it's kind of cool to see that there's a tangible from my experience there so yeah it is not everyone
0: has that you know so
2: and I know that like it could be perceived that doing film work as a non-filmmaker may not be the best quote-unquote best use of state department funds
0: but suck on it government Well, actually, <laughs> the most important work happens when people from different disciplines come together and yep. interact together. And so the lens that you brought to the screenwriting process is very different than the lens that Rehan had. Yeah. I haven't seen Elephant yet, so I can't speak to it. But yeah. Like I'm assuming the characters are a lot richer because there was this interplay of two people coming from two different disciplines, but having a similar interest. So that, that's yeah. just my two cents as someone yeah. who, like, cares a lot about
2: interdisciplinary work. And so I hope the characters are fleshed out. The movie isn't out yet for public consumption because of uh, film festival submission rules. But don't worry, once it's out, everyone will have access to it. You heard it here first! <laughs> <laughs> but speaking of people who don't come up from a filmmaking background... You made an incredible film with your iPhone.
0: Ah, yeah. We're not going to underplay your work either. So this was a lot of fun. When I was in Tanzania, I work with an organization at Harvard called the Global Health Education and Learning Incubator. So I'm very interested in this nexus of global health and education. I'm taking a class at the School of Education called Designing for Learning by Creating. Mm -hmm. So how do you create learning environments where you center the student as the agent in creating their own knowledge? Oftentimes, classrooms do take a hierarchical approach. There's ways to make it more interactive for students. So we're encouraged as students in the class to participate in that sort of similar mindset. So I'm interested in doing that kind of in a public health context. So I made a a video called Tinkering and Introduction. It is a short review of some of the key points that really stuck out to me when reading the work of Rich Resnick and Sherry Turkle. And they talk a lot about what it means to work with objects, um, what it means to have this playful hands-on experience in the classroom and how it's a valid way of learning. So I took um, what I learned and I drew images associated with them. I recorded it on my phone in Hyperlapse. And then I used this amazing app called Splice mm-hmm. to kind of uh, stitch it all together and record narration over it. And what was really cool was that MI- one of the MIT programs picked it up. Yeah. But, like, I got over 200 views. That's awesome. I'm just really excited to see it resonate. Having other edu- educators tweet at me was, like, kind of a cool yeah. experience. Yeah.
2: Yeah. You said you used an app to stitch it all together. But how long did that take for a five-minute or
0: seven-minute video? I wanted a document camera, like, yep. above my desk. So all you saw was the paper, the markers, mm-hmm. my succulents, and my hands. Yeah. So arranging that and then figuring out what images most effectively communicated what I wanted to say. Yeah. And then figuring out how to record that took half a day, and then over two nights, I just edited it all on my phone. That's the beauty of technology, right? And yeah. it makes it accessible. Yeah. And think about what a powerful tool that could be in a classroom. I think democratizing filmmaking is is a really cool is a really cool thing. And. Guess what's happening right now as we're talking
2: is the debate and people are like messaging me about it. I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm doing something a little bit more important.
0: I'm so glad Sheila that we are not watching, watching the it. debate right now. This is what we call self-care and self-love. Like, like you work in politics day to day. Yes, I do. I do work in politics on a day-to-day basis. I
2: work in politics, you work in global health, you work in academia, you work with a higher level framework in which to view the world. And, like, understanding intersectional policy and understanding nuance and facts. So it's like, mm, I don't need to watch this. I'm good. I mean, that being said, I am watching Twitter. I'm not. I just can't deal
0: with it. We mentioned this in the Origin Stories episode that, like, we both were at Center for American Progress, mm-hmm. but, like, during different years. And I was on working at Think Progress. And so we had one TV that was on MSNBC, one TV that was on CNN, one TV that was on Fox all day. Nope. And I think, like, since that summer... Uh, my ability to consume any sort of media has been dramatically reduced. So oh, I yeah. think that's I, one, one thing um, that I think we should reference people to again is is our episode, our special episode with Poor V. Because
2: mm-hmm.
0: I've been thinking a lot about the violent murders of black men last week. Yep. And also how the murders of black women, specifically black trans women as well, go completely underreported. All of this violence against
2: black people. I see it on Facebook. I don't actively choose to read about it or to watch it because it just becomes too much. Um, And I'm not doing it to like, as like, oh, I don't want to deal with the real world or like real consequences. It's just, I see that it keeps happening and it's not worth my stress right now to engage with it at like a really deep level. But I am watching our friends who are going out and protesting and doing other work around it. So... I'm staying aware of what's happening. I just don't need to Im- like embody that stress right now.
0: Uh, like stress aside, like I think this is an article that I'll link to in the show notes that I read at um, the Subcontinental Old Drift Open Mic on Friday. And the article is "The Revolution Begins with My Thoughtie: How, mm-hmm. Do- How South Asians Can Bring Black Lives Matter Home." It was written in December 2014 by a Sri Lankan queer activist named Sasha it has some very practical tips about what South Asians can do as we enter the holiday season and we're engaging in conversations with our families and friends. To your point about not really engaging, like engaging on Facebook does very little. I think a lot of the kind of change conversation happens more so in person. But like, what I think we both acknowledge is important is amplifying the work and the voices of Pe- of other people. the people yeah. who are, um, like, there's no reason for us to re-replicate what they're exactly. saying. Oh, I was
2: talking to somebody who works at the Progress Now Network affiliate in Colorado. Mm-hmm. We were talking about has have we reached peak Twitter? And I said, honestly, I think that we're getting into the the era of clearer Twitter, where if you retweet, you amplify somebody else's messaging mm-hmm. instead of mm-hmm. having to put your own noise out there into the mm-hmm. ether. Which is why, like, if you look at either of our personal Twitters, like, at least on mine, I retweet a lot of other people because what I have to say isn't going to be nearly
0: as impactful or honestly as important as what they're going to say. I was at a talk last week by Lord Ashley Hunter, who is the founder of the Trans Woman of Color Collective. Mm-hmm. She was showing us graphics from the Sylvia Rivera Law Project that talked a lot about how, in kind of like the prison industrial system mm-hmm. and the ways it really, really impacts trans communities of color. Yeah. And she was saying that, like, you know, I could have made my own graphic and put it up here, but, like, part of the work is finding what's already out there so you're not reinventing the wheel each yep. time. it's it's just like you
2: also give credit we give credit to thought leaders you give credit to different communities and you that's how you
0: become an ally it's by putting theirs out there I really enjoyed the most recent call your girlfriend episode they were just talking about how it like feels like we're on the edge of something really big and they were talking about in the context of like black artists um Mm -hmm. twitter Um, The way people amplify each other's voices and then there's like an actual space for people to find each other. Yeah. Find community. I also want to direct people to like um, the For Colored Nerds podcast episode about the Black Arts Incubator, which I found deeply inspirational on so many levels of like how do you organize community and physical spaces about creativity and sharing the knowledge and like this open source idea. We're on the precipice of something like people are organizing themselves and selves and they're democratizing access to resources because they know what it's like to be shut out to be shut out. Well, like slightly related
2: to that yesterday, I uh, went to the Hindu temple in Columbia and I'm not I don't practice my Hinduism explicitly. I went to do a presentation for high schoolers and middle schoolers on how to get involved in state politics and why it matters. Mm -hmm. i thought i was just rambling but apparently like multiple people came up to me afterwards and enjoyed it and i was like i just have a lot of feelings about this process and i just want you guys to understand why but my whole thing was when i was growing up nobody was in columbia long enough and like worked in this space Mm -hmm. to provide even that example for me Mm -hmm. actually managed to convince a 14 year old or like inspired her to talk to me afterwards about what she was interested in and why she she's like I'm not a citizen but I want to know what else I can do and I was like do you want to come canvas with me next Sunday for like a a bottom of the ticket race but that's still incredibly important she was like yes I would like to do that
0: and it's so helpful when you have someone who looks like you there to like Guide you through the rope. Yeah. When you have role models from the community showing that, like, what it means to be civically engaged.
2: And it was great because my mom was there, too. There were a bunch of, like, aunties and uncles there, too. And so my mom at, some, at one point, like, got in on it and was like... Talking about my friend who's running for Southern Boone County District Commissioner, but talking her up and talking up Jason Kander and talking up like Stephen Weber. And uh, Jason Kander is running against Roy Blunt uh, for the US Congress, and Stephen is running for a uh, state Senate seat. And it was just like really cool to hear like what aunties and uncles can do too for my mom where she's like I can't go out on canvas because it's really hot but Sheila does that so instead like if I get an email a donation email I'll throw a couple hundred at somebody because I can it was really really cool to see her kind of be that role model as well
0: yeah that's so awesome and I care a lot about faith-based organizing I know yeah So like I mean when I heard that you were doing that it made me happy that you were leveraging like the fit like a faith community mm-hmm. it's to talk super about those things to me because yeah like yeah. all of these things intersect like these mm-hmm. are not identities that are divorced from each other yeah and it's not even like
2: your cultural identity but also your area of interest or like what type of career you might want so like uh, the man who organized this particular meeting was like so why does it matter to do policy if you're like going into stem and i was like they completely intersect and i gave an example of a, a house bill that was originally about introducing some new sort of like biological technology to clean lagoon wastewater. I was like, that's really boring. But what was important is they added an amendment on later that would fundamentally change the composition of the Clean Water Commission. And it would reduce, Mm -hmm. it would basically not require any citizen to be on that board. And you could stack it eventually with pro-business, like anti-regulatory commissioners. And that was vetoed and overridden. I'm like, but if you're STEM, this matters to you. This should matter to you. Yep. There's no outrage from the STEM community because there's not that engagement level. Mm-hmm. And it was just really cool to hear like other people chime in and like get really revved up about state politics.
0: Oh, more people need to be.
2: Yeah. And I showed the last week tonight clip from a couple of years ago that got me reignited to get back mm-hmm. into state politics. And people were like laughing at different like examples from other states. And I, after it ended, I was like, the things that you guys were laughing at all happened in Missouri and at a worse rate. FYI. Yeah. And I gave those examples and they were mm-hmm. everyone was just like, oh crap.
0: <laughs> oh, guess what I'm holding right here that I need to mail in the next day or so? It's my absentee ballot request form for nice. Michigan. Nice. It's a very difficult form. We can have a conversation about yeah. how the design of voter reg forms, ballots. Yeah. There's actually an amazing ninety nine percent Oh, Visible episode on ballot design. Give me a second. Um, I'm going to put that on my Stitcher. But I have my absentee ballot request form because I always vote um, because um, I'm a Midwesterner and I love my state, but also a lot of crazy things happen. Yeah. And it's more worthwhile for me to vote there. And plus, when I was living in D.C., like, yeah. and my vote would have meant nothing. You don't have
2: a vote. Like, and I couldn't
0: speak to D.C. issues yeah. as... Someone who was only there for a year and a half.
2: Yeah. Well, when I voted absentee in, um, mm-hmm. when I was in D.C. in 2012 for, uh, for the Missouri primary, I had to get it notarized. What? Luckily, the woman oh, the woman who ran the office was a notary.
0: But how, how am I supposed to find a notary? I don't know. I don't know. I remember when I voted in the 2012 election, I was in Indonesia, mm. and my my teachers drove me to the... My co workers, yeah. my co teachers drove me to the consulate so That's I could awesome. submit my ballot. It was the coolest experience ever. That's
2: really cool. Um, and I have a lot of feelings on how international voting should work because um, it, it sucks. The process sucks. Yeah, like I was traveling when it happened. Like it, I wasn't going to be in Calcutta long enough, but like between requesting an absentee ballot and it maybe showing up to, do, uh, to actually vote. And so I just don't understand why there can't be a better process where.
0: Before we jump into our next music break, a quick reminder that Hindi Rock Fest is just around the corner. It's taking place in Cambridge, Massachusetts, October 14th and 15th, which is this week. And it's bound to be a fabulous time. You'll see Sheila and I both there. Information about tickets can be found at hrf2016.brownpapertickets.com. Go check it out! This week we're super pumped to be featuring the work of Anik Khan, the Bengali-born Queensbread rapper who just released his new single, Cleopatra. It's difficult to pinpoint one specific thing about his music, but his crooning is effortless. He samples Bollywood music and there's just so many layers of texture in his work and he weaves it together effortlessly. Lots of gratitude to Anik for letting us feature his music this episode. You can check out more of his work at soundcloud.com slash Onyik Khan Music. That's A-N-I-K-K-H-A-N. That Cleopatra by Anik Khan.
1: Tell me that you love me, make sure that you mean it, and I'll treat you like royalty. That's just how I see it. Papa is a king, all I bleed is royal. So get up on his throne and not forget that I had morals. I'm a motherfucking pharaoh that then grew up on the corner. You can always judge a man with how much weight is on his shoulders. Why I need my lady, yeah, I need my lady to wanna build this legacy with me. You're in my Africa, Africa, Cleopatra, lead me into your castle. That you mean it I've been going through some things And God knows I need it See, I can't fight this fight alone Every ruler needs a you at home Now do I look like I'd be taking notice I'm breaking borders Play my territory And take shit over That's why I need my lady I need my lady To wanna build this legacy with me You're
0: just a lot uh, my thesis got confirmed today good I sat down with my uh, with my mentor and mm-hmm. we we're like okay let's figure this out in 20 minutes we did it was awesome so I'll be looking good. at uh, are the qualitative factors that like facilitate successful or and sustainable women's groups in northern Tanzania the plus point is that I have someone who can do translation for me like my Tanzanian colleague Ray and he's yeah. like Amazing, and he worked yeah. like he knows how to work with people and he knows how to work in development. The what's curious about the women's groups that you've been working with are like have a diverse age range from 19 to, to like 60 something. Mm-hmm. That's not something I saw always when, with women's groups in India. Mm-hmm. So that like the knowledge and c- community connection gets yeah. like passed on. Like there's something there. Like mm-hmm. what allows a good group to stay going? Like, we know that women and money is usually a good thing in mm-hmm. terms of like that health and well-being of children and yeah, communities. Yeah. But we haven't quite started looking at what are the, the factors behind that, it. that facilitate that within yeah. a group. I'm working on a study that I'm developing a codebook book for a study that interviewed trans youth and their care parents or caregivers. Mm-hmm. And specifically they had questions about relationships. So it's not only something that's more longitudinal, mm-hmm. it's also something that has multiple perspectives about the same topic. Cool. So that keeps me pretty busy. I'm designing mm-hmm. a mental health curriculum. It's probably like a digital space that allows adolescents to Familiarize themselves with um, common mental health definitions, Mm -hmm. like developing a kind of interactive toolkit for communicating with loved ones. Yeah, like friends or teachers or somebody. Yeah. I think artistic exploration allows for a lot of processing of these emotions and feelings. So like thinking of ways they can be integrated in a more digital platform
2: quick question about that so like friends of mine started menstrupedia which is an online forum and like mm-hmm. resource but also the mm-hmm. comics talking mm-hmm. about puberty um yeah. for indian girls so i didn't know if that was part of
0: your general framework so the stuff that's out there right now like menstrupedia scarletine is an american-based one mm-hmm. that they're all sexual mostly sexual health focused yep. So, like, the model isn't totally new, but particularly with mental health, there's not a lot of strategies and things addressing adolescents and giving them the tools to kind of articulate those feelings and emotions. And also understanding the landscape, because, like, that's really the most daunting thing. Is like, if you've grown up in a community where, like, talking about mental health is taboo, the word medication or therapy, like, freaks the bejesus out of you. Yeah. Like, you don't actually know what that means could mean or entail or like I also really like how rookie magazine their tone but there's this element of carefreeness and creativity like digital collages and like horoscopes and things like that that I think could be remixed in interesting ways for like an online platform so I'm toying around with that cool but everything's gonna take a lot of work
2: yeah that's what it sounds like the fact that you have these like pretty massive projects I'm just like mmm glad I'm not in grad school yet but it also sounds like really rewarding that you'll have a lot of good stuff to pull from as you like as you start your thesis specifically
0: and what's nice is finally like I'm it's hard fun it's Mm -hmm. like stuff that I care about like adolescent mental health so like it's still like in your scope but like do I understand what I'm doing in class all the time hell no
2: So I listen to the West Wing Weekly, I'm a big politics nerd, Um, Mm -hmm. but Rishi K. and Joshua Molina were talking about musicals for some reason on the show. For people who are not familiar, who's Rishi K. He is, um, he was in a band. He's like Mm -hmm. actually really well known in um, like the indie rock punk scene. And he is the host of Song
0: Exploder. Song Explorer, it's Radiotopia.
2: So yeah, I just know he's the, the host of that podcast. Mm-hmm. And then Joshua Molina was on the West Wing and he's now on Scandal. And they've known each other since their time at Yale. <laughs> They're talking about musicals. And at one point, uh was just like, I don't, I don't like musicals at all. And I get that. I'm not a musical fan either. And Joshua was like, oh, but you're like, I'm sure you were raised with like Bollywood. And he's like, I don't like Bollywood and maybe that's why. And that just really irritated me. <laughs> The way that musicals and Indian cinema work are completely different. Mm-hmm. So this is a thing I have to explain to all the time. Because they're like, oh, how can you like one and not like the other? The same things. Like, Primarily in musicals, like the songs advance the plot. The, you can't take the songs out and watch it. While in Indian cinema, you can. And the songs are there for a very specific reason, which stems to, back to when... Uh, silent films were popular. So you have these silent films in the 1910s and 20s traveling around India when they're projected local artists come through and they perform with it. So when talkies were invented or when the the technology was around, they decided not to abandon that tradition Mm -hmm. and integrate it into Indian cinema. And in this case, that means creating an entirely parallel industry of music direction and playback singers and cultivating a sense of music tradition through film.
0: So they're two very different things. No, I I agree. And it's also interesting to see specifically in Bollywood how that tradition has been evolving. And like how a lot of filmmakers are starting to internalize that less music makes your movie more serious and worthy. You know, so you're seeing a lot fewer dance numbers you'll get your item number but you don't get like these bigger
2: masala romantic Mm -hmm. dance sequences
0: rather you get these intense songs and people are moving around and Mm -hmm. doing stuff which is yeah like you can still have
2: that tradition while having i don't know a tighter plot and more fleshed out characters and like maybe keeping the story straight what wait (laughs) okay wait wait sheila (laughs) logic here please in my dream world, honestly, I would love to have a job as a script consultant. It's like, you have to get that through me. I will give you feedback. And if you don't change it, like, your script can't be produced. I'm sorry. I also think people
0: tend to write off Bollywood films, specifically Bollywood films. Yeah. So I'm not talking about regional sim- Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, a, that's a subject that you can speak to more. Yeah. Um, because they, like, oftentimes promote a very conservative view of the world. Mm-hmm nuance around class, religion, gender norms. I think like that's why I love pretentious movie reviews. Yes, the YouTube series. Because these two comedians unpack so incisively um, some of the hypocrisies in Bollywood films. But that being said, there's a really fascinating emerging tradition of reading these films with a different lens and understanding that they're a product of certain things in history and like certain Mm -hmm. things in society like our mutual friend yeah she takes these typical you know these uh Bollywood actors from the 80s and 90s and she sort of queers them in like this most beautiful way it's awesome it's like sexy and yeah
2: if you go to let me paint that for you on Facebook that is Millie's artist page. You can look at all of her really amazing work and it isn't just queering Bollywood or queering masculinities, but it's also queering other forms of art.
0: But it's like a, this completely new way of reading film. Yeah. It's kind of cool to see some of this start to happen to Bollywood films. Not only there are, are there Bollywood films that are actually addressing issues head on, like social issues head on now, Yeah, but like looking back at some of the quote-unquote more problematic stuff...
2: Because I actually wrote an entire paper on using the diaspora as like a tool for exploring modernity in Indian cinema. Okay, get at me, girl. When we talk about regressive or traditional norms in Indian cinema, specifically Bollywood, um, I thought it was really fascinating that when the Hindi film uh, industry decided to market directly to the diaspora, certain directors really took advantage of that market by exploring issues of like of violence against women so for instance in Pardes where you see yep. that or, or you see um like issues of queerness like in Dostana or premarital sex in kabil Vida
0: I was going to say salam namaste oh that pregnancy. yes
2: yeah 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 pregnancy before marriage I haven't looked at this paper in a really long time but you find that a lot of movies that tackle quote unquote sensitive issues whether problematically or not are done outside of India, which is really fascinating.
0: It's locating these morals and values within Bharat. Yes, as not Indian. And if you, like, speaking of Pradesh, this just kind of reminded me, like, a lot of times when you see NRIs and diasporic characters in film, we're usually the villains. Yeah. There's this movie that came out called English of English, and it portrays this, uh, Indian mother who's visiting family in the States and she enrolls in English lessons because her English is not quite so strong, and her triumphs and challenges in this process her niece in the movie is Indian American mm-hmm. and she's the first sympathetic Indian American character that I've seen in a Bollywood movie
2: and i think it's because the economics around film is shifting mm-hmm. so like the reason that you have all these films that are targeted toward NRI communities is because the dollar is so much stronger than the rupee and you can get more money from a, one screening there than you can like four screenings in india but all of a sudden when film costs go up in india and not you're ticket is 500, 700 rupees, and your ticket in the US is 10, it's more equal. There's so much more of an influx of international culture in India that your urban markets are expecting
0: more nuance. What you're mentioning right now, Uh, particularly about urban centers reminds me of a super fascinating article on the caravan a couple years ago Mm -hmm. that just discussed how um the like anglicization of hindi cinemas does not reflect any true population other than like maybe rich urbanites but just to Mm -hmm. switch gears a little bit just to talk about the rest of india uh, Bollywood is not the only uh, Indian film industry.
2: So many feelings about this. some people are like, oh, Bollywood, they produce all these films a year. I'm like, boo-boo, that is a fraction of what's produced. So hit me
0: up. Like, what are you feeling these days? How would you differentiate um, some of the other Indian regional cinemas?
2: So um, overall, there are about, uh, I'd say, eight other different cinemas. You have strong cinemas, that is. You have Bengali, Punjabis, Bhojpuri, which is um, Uttar Pradesh and Bihar. All four, well, There's five states now, but uh, the four major regions of South India have their own cinemas. You have Kannada, Telugu, Malayalam, and Tamil. There's some representation in the Northeast. Manipur has their own regional cinema, Mm -hmm. um, but it's not flourishing right now. And then you have Marathi cinema. So you have all these different types of cinema. And it's really fascinating how the traditions in each industry have come uh, into play. So, for instance, Telugu movies are actively known for their masala and their just um, cr- like craziness, for lack of a better word. And they historically have not cared about producing serious cinema. I have never seen an Telugu art house film.
0: Well, I mean, we're saying
2: serious as defined a serious meaning like tackling social issues with tact, kind of leaving behind the larger than life filter of the regular Telugu movies. Mm-hmm. So okay. it isn't just, like, a camera and people. Because, mm-hmm. like, I have I lived in Heatherabad the first six months, and there's such disparity between what Heatherabad is like and what Telugu culture is like, and then what the movies portray.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: That being said, if you want a good masala movie, Telugu movies will always have your back. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Like, my two favorite industries to compare are Bengali and Malayalian. I think there's a lot of interesting cultural overlap in that they were both communist states for a really long time. They both have a really strong sense of matrilineal respect.
0: <laughs> and they're both very culturally highbrow, for lack of a better Just, word. Are there like a lot of quote unquote Malayali art house films? Yes. Okay. That I mean, is uh, like. I'm only really, fim- like, as. A Bengali person I'm only really familiar with. But even then, you know more about the Bengali film industry than I do. (laughs) That being said, most of what I see is like only serious. Like Bengali people are only sad and serious. Or they have
2: like sad and serious masala movies where you're like, this doesn't compute. But Malayali Cinema, they have really fun masala movies, but they also have a strong history of art house cinema. Seeing the relationship between Malayali and Bengali cinema is... Malayali cinema is really innovative. And the technique that was used in city of the Brazilian film City of God, where you use an one event mm-hmm. and then go back and forth. Oh, yeah, that was actually first used yeah. if pioneered in Bengali cinema. Oh, I had no idea. Uh, and that was pioneered, I think by
0: Satya Satyajit Ray. Yeah, he does a lot of cool stuff. Yeah. If all y'all aren't familiar with Satya Ray, Get yourself.
2: Father Panchali or just like, Charulata, like get yourself a classic.
0: His the Apu trilogy, which is what he's most known for, has was recently remastered in the last couple years, so it's particularly stunning. I encourage you to YouTube the Ghost Sequence from Goopy Gain Bagabine
2: because
0: uh-huh. It is some of the wackiest film that I've ever seen like for for that time period because it's black and white and they're essentially doing like ghost zombie type things. So the way he uses like film negatives Mm -hmm. and shadows and katakali like outlines to portray this otherworldly thing when you didn't have like special effects was both really weird and really cool. That's really cool. So you mentioned a play on
2: aesthetic, talk about, I don't know, like that zombie theme. Pakistani cinema is actually super interesting in that regard. What do you the mean? The violence and horror genre in Pakistani cinema was really, really popular in the 70s. Oh. It was in direct reaction to the military issues in the 70s and 80s.
0: That's fascinating. That's really fascinating.
2: I have a really cool article that I can link to. Oh, that'd be perfect. I think it's really interesting to look at like other like national cinemas, especially because like Mm -hmm. everything is overshadowed by Bollywood. There's so many other interesting things going on.
0: Oh my goodness. Like that's one reason I'm like really happy that kind of the mystery genre trend has been bleeding from Bengali cinema into Bollywood. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh my god, I love myself a good mystery that's based in India, usually Kolkata because it's so eerie. It's such an eerie city. (laughs) Like crumbling Victorian grandeur plus the hella powerfulness of Durga Puja.
2: But even Calcutta during non-Durga Puja times is amazing for detective or mystery type of storytelling techniques. Like what would, what do you want to see?
0: One thing I know I would like to have talked about is cast so I think that's actually
2: really interesting that you bring that up because apparently in Tamil cinema there is discussion of cast
0: I mean you get the rich poor dichotomy in a lot of narratives yeah. but you don't really get like historically marginalized
2: yeah absolutely or if you do it's like not normalized not examined and treated with respect
0: what's on your wish
2: list more fleshed out female characters and not marketing it as a female movie that's all I ever ask for
0: I want more roles for older women mm-hmm which is that you have a lot of really old actors. Romancing young women. Super young women. This just gives a really strange vision of like what relationships should look like and be like. Yes. There's this phenomenal
2: Malayali movie called Salt and Pepper. And it's about a romance between two older people. And it's so good. Oh my God. I saw it maybe four years ago and it's still stuck in my head. Because it was so refreshing to see how uh, like real relationships can start even if you're in your 50s or 60s because you know partners pass away or you get divorced or whatever. And they don't make that a big deal. They just see two people falling in love.
0: Yo, that's real. Like one thing that we have to really deal with, particularly in South Asian communities, particularly in India, is that there's this dissolution of like the nuclear kind of extended family and so there you ha- you're having this movement, towards what is in the States, which is like a lot of old people are by themselves and they don't have a support system. And India currently does not have a healthcare system that supports the elderly. Like that's just sort of, um, not that the American system is better, but is much better. But at least there's an acknowledgement that this is a reality. Like, like eventually we're going to be at this time where there's a lot of old people who are essentially isolated, but don't have any like social narratives that show that like life can be good still or like
2: when you mentioned like older men romancing younger women much younger women mm -hmm. is this really bizarre notion of how sexuality is performed in specifically hindi cinema um, and how as part of the diaspora that utilizes hindi cinema what that means for us and our develop our self development of sexuality growing up. So I was having this conversation mm-hmm. um, a couple of days ago, and it's like still with me. And I, I want to talk to you about it. Yeah. So yeah, totally. You're growing up in the Midwest. On one hand, you have like age appropriate media, but it is very white, and so that I the internalization isn't on that same wavelength as watching Indian cinema or Hindi cinema and seeing that same color and seeing those like same body type, but it's not age appropriate because it's not meant to be an educational tool. And you see, like, item songs or you see, like, very suggestive romantic songs. That's, like, a really interesting mix of messaging. On top of that is, like, this traditional idea of conservatism and modesty. And so it's just, like, how do all these things kind of play out, especially within our generation?
0: We can't forget the other layers that, like, sex isn't talked exactly. about, intimacy is yeah. not talked about. And if it is, it's, like, Rush in through abstinence, only my mom mentioned a couple of weeks ago she had a sex talk with us essentially and the, I'm just gonna leave it at that but like that's just kind of sort of speaks to like some of the silence I'm, I'm 25 years old and I just had a sex talk with my parents
2: and I had the exact opposite experience my parents medicalized <laughs> it or my mom medicalized it and I was like 13 and I was just like uh and like I remember my mom saying like if you ever got pregnant and didn't want to be we would figure out a way and I was like I don't think that's a real problem right now but thank you
0: but at least saying yeah. that... Yeah, no,
2: no, for sure. It's compl- like, really... <laughs> yeah, I completely like, appreciate it. At least it. it
0: acknowledges that sex exists.
2: Yeah, yeah. But, but um, I was just like, that seems a little... We're jumping the gun a little bit on this conversation... On that part of the right? conversation. So, like,
0: there's like, so a lot of mixed messages. Yeah. And I agree, as someone who also grew up in the Midwest, especially when you're in the Midwest...
2: So, like, for instance, like, when I talk about, like, the hypersexualization through uh, through Hindi songs, like, Jati Hume from Karan Arjun is the most explicit, like, example of this for me. hmm Like I vividly remember being like seven or eight years old and it would make me feel like slightly uncomfortable because I knew even then how sexual it was. But I still enjoyed the song and I still enjoyed like, or like the aesthetics of it, but I didn't, being introduced to something so like sexually charged was felt a little bit like weird, especially when it's like, you're not allowed to watch PG-13 movies at the same time.
0: Right. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. On that note, shall we wrap up? Yeah. So we've made it through number eight. Woo! Killing it. Killing it. And hopefully you learned some new things about film. Yeah. And voting and local politics and what it means to be involved. And actually, this is a great reminder. If you need to submit your absentee ballot request form, go print that shit off and put it in the mail ASAP.
2: So check your state, check your county.
0: So that's your uh, weekly uh, reminder is uh, as soon as you hear this episode, make sure that you're registered to vote. You can find Sheila at Queen of Blah and you can find me, Nina, at Only Nina. And you can find the show
2: at Elmira Radio. You can find us at elmiraradio.tumblr.com. And if you want to email us, it's elmiraradiohour at gmail.com. And you know you want to leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It allows all sorts of other people to find us. So so thank you, thank you guys you. for listening, and we will see you in a couple of weeks. That's goodbye. Bye, Nina.